0: I am really excited about football season. My husband and I get really into it. He's still a student at Ohio State, so we root really big in our family. I get really into it. I actually didn't watch, watch the game yesterday because I wanted to save my voice, because I get really into it. I start screaming and, and yelling and scaring my daughter. But as much as I love football season, I anybody else here have loved this Olympic season we've just been through? I feel like it's been a whole month right, of it being just consuming our screens. I mean, we even had it on at work. Um, I was watching sports I didn't even know existed. I'm like, wow, they have that at the Olympics? Uh, but it has been, right? It's been a blur and it's kind of dying down now, right? The hype is kind of you know, coming to a close and um, I don't know if I'm the only one that thinks this, but I find it kind of funny to see these athletes back in normal clothes, because I'm used to seeing them in these like spandexy, sparkly outfits, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's that person that won the, you know, this medal, and and it's just it's funny to me because I think you know as much as you know they've been thrown into the spotlight, you know, I didn't even know who these people were before Rio, but now seeing them, um, I've realized that, uh, I realize that I kind of forget that they're real people, right? They almost feel larger than life, like on that screen and watching them constantly 24-7. But I realize that after the stands have kind of cleared and the uh, green pools have been drained (laughs) and the torch has been put out, um, they just have to go back to their real normal lives, don't they? Because as much as, you know, so much has happened and transpired over this last month, they're still the same person they were just a month ago. And I don't know why, but I really love to actually read about these athletes, about their lives, and, because I know, I know it must have taken incredible sacrifice, and incredible just effort on their part to get to where they are. I mean, they're just one of the few to actually represent their country. Big deal. So as I research and I look and, and watch these biopics about their life, um, I find that I am strangely encouraged by their humanity. Recently, I uh, read an article of Gabby Douglas, and you saw that picture earlier here. She was part of the U.S. women's gymnastics teams for two Summer Olympics. And in 2012, in London, she won two gold medals, becoming the first African-American to win the the individual all-around event. It's a pretty big deal. And then this year's Olympics, she was again on the U.S. team, and she was part of the final five who also took home gold. If anyone watched those, those were really fun. She's had an incredible career, but as I was researching her life, I realized, man, she almost gave up right before the first Olympics she went to. And at the time, she was about 15 years old. And get this, I don't know how these kids do it. Fifteen years old, she moves away to Iowa by herself and leaves her family in Florida. And she, she says this. She said, now, no one knew me back then, but yeah, like I really wanted to quit. I wanted to try a different sport like track, or field, track and field because I was just really homesick. I just wanted to be a normal teenage kid. I don't blame her. (laughs) My mom, my coach, my sister, my host family, everyone told me to keep fighting. That The Olympics were right around the corner. And my brother, John, who is my closest friend, kept telling me to keep fighting and pushing along. And a couple days later, I went back to the gym, and I was on fire. I was just determined to get back and give it my 100%. So why is it, guys? Why do we find this so comforting when we find out people struggle just like we do? Right? Because I think it helps, doesn't it? It helps to know we're not crazy, that we're not alone in this struggle, because this struggle is real, right? <laughs> it's helpful to know that people's lives aren't as picture-perfect as they look on Instagram and Facebook, right? Anybody think that? <laughs> in this Christian life, it is not about who seemingly all got it, got it all together or who's farther along. It's about not giving up. That's what it's about. When the world says, you know, only the strong survive, Christians say, no, actually, it's the opposite. It's only the weak and the dependent that end well in the Christian life. And why is that? it's because they realize they need Jesus and they keep holding on to him to the very end. They keep running the race set out before them no matter what the terrain is. This is kind of cool, but yesterday my dad texted me randomly. He's like, "Oh, hey, by the way, did you know it's my 43rd birthday in the Lord?" Which means he's been a Christian for like 43 years. And and I was pretty impressed and I'm very encouraged by that fact. And it is encouraging to hear of people that have been a Christian for as long as that and are going strong and And yet you don't know this, I know this as his daughter, but I know how hard of a journey it's been for him in those last 43 years. Because I've seen it, at least most of it, I've seen it. He's really struggled. He had a stroke years back. I've watched him recover almost completely from that. I watched him struggle with, you know, losing jobs here and there, and, and just the ups and downs of life. And parents, I just want to encourage you, your your kids are watching you, no pressure, but your kids are watching you because they know when you have a bad day, and they know when you hit a rough patch, and they see the successes and the failures in your life, and they're watching you. They're watching to see if you give up. They're watching to see if you keep going, if you're still faithful. Faithful. I pray I have half as much grit as my dad has in faithfully walking toward Jesus no matter what his circumstances. So currently we're doing this really great, really great series on the, the book of Acts, and it's called The Church in Motion, and it's the story of the early church, is how the church began, right? And their struggle, and their success, and it is an action-packed book. Even this chapter, many things are going on. But today, we're looking at chapter 18, and we're going to continue looking at the life and the journey of Paul. Now, he's one of the church greats, right? I mean, you look at the book of Acts, and he seems larger than life. I mean, he's everywhere. And he's one of the main tools that God actually uses to spread the gospel throughout the world, throughout, um, for just, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, thank God. And... Uh, as we look at chapter 18 here, what we, do, what we see is we get this glimpse of Paul's humanity, and it's an incredible insight into the burden he actually bears. Paul is not unlike us, right? And what affects us actually affects Paul too, and that's what we're going to see today. He wasn't some superhuman guy. He wasn't immune to struggle or discouragement. And he wasn't immediately sanctified like we almost portray him to be in Scripture. Do you get that? When he said in in Philippians 4.11, I have realized over time I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances. That means like over the years I have finally learned to be content. So it wasn't just right away that he's like, I'm content, let's go. Uh, (laughs) And that's how we sometimes see Paul, right? As this perfect guy that's just, you know, nothing stops him. But today, we'll see differently. What we see is God intervening in Paul's life when he needs it the most. And it's the Lord's encouragement that actually keeps him going. And I think this can actually give us immense encouragement today. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this time and this space to just come and meet with you as a body. Thank you, God, for this church. I pray blessing on this church. And I just pray your presence would come even more right now. Holy Spirit, come. I pray, God, that you would you would just give us a refreshment today that we need. Lord, whatever has been dragging us down, God, would you lighten our load? Would you speak to our hearts, God? Would we open, would we be open and receptive to hear your voice today, God? We pray your words are spoken, not mine. In Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dive into Acts 18, can I do a little geography lesson? Yeah? Okay, so I blew up these pictures, so hopefully we'll be able to see them, okay? But I want to give a little background of where Paul's headed today, which is the city of Corinth. Paul would have had to travel about 50 miles west from where he was in chapter 17, which is Athens, to this chapter, which is Corinth. Um, Corinth was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, which is a pretty big deal. Um, It was almost 20 times bigger of a city than Athens, so think the difference from coming to Athens to going to Corinth. I mean, this city is huge. It had almost 200,000 people, uh, freedmen is what they said, and then about 500,000 slaves. So it's roughly like, smaller than the size of Columbus. So it was really big back then. That's big for, for an ancient city. And what's interesting about Corinth is that the city is located just south of this very tiny little narrow isthmus. I had to look up that word because I didn't know what it meant. But it's like a land bridge that forms um, between two land masses, the land masses of Greece here, modern-day Greece. And it's about four miles wide, and you can actually see it on the next picture here. This is a modern-day aerial shot. You see that line right through the middle? They finally dug a canal uh, between the two seas there so that they could have a have a a way of transferring uh, ships back and forth. And why is this so important? Because Corinth has two harbors. Big deal. One on the west, one on the east. Thus commanding the trade routes between Asia and Rome. So they were obviously really wealthy. They had a lot of luxury in Corinth, but also came with a lot of corruption. Corruption of every kind. Corinth was a city with, remarkable, with a remarkable reputation of depravity, especially sexual immorality. One of the ancient writers describes Corinth as a town where none but the tough could survive. And this paints a really vivid picture of the kind of setting that Paul is headed to in chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts 18, and we're going to read along with just uh, verses 1 through 11 here. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, where he met a Jew named Aquila and a native, a native of Pontus, who had recently bec- come from Italy with his wife Prisa, or Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook his clothes out in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent of it. For now I will go to the Gentiles. And then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in God and many of the corinthians who heard paul believed and were baptized one night the lord spoke to paul in a vision do not be afraid keep on speaking do not be silent for i am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because i have many people in the city so paul stayed in corinth for a year and a half teaching the word of god so every time i've read over this passage in the last couple weeks I keep tripping over these almost last two verses in 9 and 10. Because what you can't see here is that these words are in red. So if you had your Bible open, you notice there's actually red words here. Well, why is that strange? Because we know that's when Jesus is speaking. But we also know that he died and rose again and was resurrected 20 years before. So when he says, Lord, this is Jesus actually appearing to him in a vision. In a time where Paul actually needed it the most. Now Luke doesn't actually tell us why. Why does the Lord show up to Paul in this time in his life? And what's interesting is this is about halfway through Paul's ministry. Um, He was in ministry for probably 30 years, and this is probably year 16 of his ministry. So it's about halfway point, and we see Jesus showing up to comfort him. But thankfully, this is not the only source of context from this time in Paul's life, which is really helpful. So I want to look at some supporting text today to clue us into the kind of condition that Paul was in when he came to the city of Corinth. And what I could find are that there are about like three different aspects of Paul's life being affected, which is the relational, the physical, and the psychological. So first, what we see is he's traveling alone. Interesting. Because last week, um, if you were here in chapter 17, we, we hear about Paul being escorted to Athens to escape from Berea. And then they left him there alone to return for Silas and Timothy. And here he is, by himself, facing one of the most daunting tasks ahead of him, one of the biggest cities he's been to, and he's all by himself. And the second thing we see is that he's physically weak. And we know this because years later, um, after already planting the church in Corinth, he writes to them recounting the first time he came to the city. Which brings us a lot of insight. So, if we look at 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, this is what it says. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear, and with trembling. So, He's alone, He's weak. And we also see a psychological state here. He's afraid. So in attempts to understand why the Paul would be afraid doesn't seem like a characteristic I really think of when I think of Paul, right? I looked up the words in Greek just to get a better understanding of what he meant because these are his words writing about what he was feeling, and it was really helpful. So if we look at the word weakness, it's athesnia, and it means of body and soul, it's an ailment or lack of strength that deprives someone of accomplishing what they would like to do. <laughs> not ever feeling like you have what it takes. Interesting. Ever gotten mad at your body for not keeping up with your plans? Uh-huh. Anyone here have an ailment or an energy injury that's stopping them or slowing them down? Yeah, we know what that's like, don't we? Um, great fear. Let's move on to the next one. It means it's phobos in the Greek, and it means to flee or withdraw, feeling inadequate, dread, terror, and scared of evil. Really helpful. I think this is where we start understanding why understanding where he's headed really matters. The city of Corinth was a really powerfully dark city, and whether he's fearful of further attacks, right, or he's scared that that a church plant might not survive here if he even tried, I don't know that, but I know these feelings. Anyone else? I know what this feels like. And then the last one, trembling, tromos, nervous, quaking, anxiety, one who distrusts his own ability to meet requirements. Yep. Anyone ever been nervous? Everyone, anyone ever been anxious, right? Anyone scared of failure? I mean, come on, like, we're human. Yes, we all know what that feels like, and we can relate to this. And, and in these words, we get a glimpse of Paul's humanity because it's helpful not only to give us a context of why Jesus shows up right here in the story, but it's also really encouraging to us because the same things that affected Paul affect us too, right? I think it's also really helpful to see these words because it starts to unveil the tactics of the enemy, Right? We see the enemy trying to stop Paul, trying to get him to give up, because the enemy is ruthless, isn't he? And he's always looking for an opportunity to kick us when we're down because he's dirty like that, isn't he? Ezra 4 describes the strategy of the devil that he uses against God's people. It's to discourage the people and make them afraid to work against them and to frustrate their plans. That's so true. True. And usually it's when we're alone and it's when we're frustrated and it's when we're tired and and it's when we have conflict and fear that the enemy starts to really discourage us, right? He starts to get us to doubt our calling and doubt the goodness of God. Because ultimately, what does he want? He wants to make you and I ineffective. He doesn't really care about getting rid of us. He just wants to make us ineffective. Because he knows we're already gods. He just doesn't want us to make an impact, He is scared of what you are going to do in the kingdom of God, of the role you play in the kingdom of God. So he wants to stop you, sometimes before we even begin, right? So what gets us discouraged? What gets you guys discouraged? Rick Warren actually says this. You don't determine a person's greatness by their talent or their wealth or their education. You determine a person's greatness by what it takes to discourage them. Interesting. Now, discouragement is not a sin, right? It's just one of the greatest, most worn out tools that the enemy uses to get us to quit and to get us to give up. I'll just be a little bit honest here, but when I am weary and tired and worn out and discouraged, my boldness and my compassion go straight out the window. Anybody else? I try, it's weird, but I start conserving energy uh, by isolating myself, I start to withdraw. I'm not as willing to open and engage in conversation with my coworkers. I'm not as willing to go out of my way to help people or encourage them. It's interesting, but I, I start fearing losing the resources that God has entrusted to me, like my time and my energy and, and you know anything that the Lord has really given me. And instead of just being a good steward of those things, I actually start just becoming a person of fear, scared, and just selfish. Just selfish. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 6 says, and, and this relates a little bit more of Paul's thoughts here, so I'll just read it. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside and fear within. But God Who comforts the downcast, comforted us. So, how did God actually comfort Paul in this passage? So, first, what we see is that God provides through friendship. And one of the greatest gifts of encouragement that God has given us, right, is what? Each other, right? One another in this life, our dear friends. And through some persecution in Rome, this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, really cool couple, uh, are uprooted and recently arrive in Corinth. And I don't think this is a chance encounter because what we know from scripture is that a Priscilla and Aquila become his lifelong friends. I mean, he, he not only works with them and lives with them, but he ministers with them. And for the next 16 years, they're in his life and in his ministry. And in the last days of Paul, like when he, he was writing the last book, 2 Timothy, he actually, the very last paragraph says, make sure you tell Priscilla and Aquila that I, that I love them. Like he, he wants to commend himself to them, of all people, in the last days of his life. And you can see the kind of friendship the, that they have here. So they also enabled Paul to work his trade, right, tent making, <clears throat> which is also like leather making, depending on you know, the time. Um, They would do tents and other leather works, and it it enabled him to provide for himself, probably for the first time in a while. And uh, it's kind of like a true church planner, because an apostle is, is merely more than that, right? Just a church planner. And so he works during the week, and on the weekends, it says he goes to the synagogue, and he preaches and reasons with the Jews and the Gentiles. True church planner. So God has not only blessed him with two new friends, but what's really cool is that he brings two old friends back into his life. He's finally reunited with Silas and with Timothy, who come with encouraging words about the growth of the churches up north. And you can just think, like as much as Paul loves these churches that he's planted, his heart and his prayers every day are about them. So to hear actual word from from Silas and Timothy that they're doing well must have been really encouraging. Now, I want to say this i think it's really important that we know what it's like to stand up for our faith and to stand up for what's right even when we're all by ourselves right when no one's there to support us or or to back us up it's good for us to know how to be courageous and stand up for things but doing life by yourself is not an option that's just not an option in the kingdom of god because he's built us for community we cannot do this life alone and we need to remember that. And I think Paul must have remembered that in this time as well. I think it's important just, not just because it's nice to have friends, but I think it's a really spiritual reality of having friendship and how, how important that is. And, and I have, uh, I've experienced this myself. Um, one of the darker times in my life, which I thought would actually be a highlight in my life, was my last semester in college and I went to uh, Europe to do a study abroad program, and I was so excited uh, to get to actually study art in the actual museums and not just on the textbook page. I was really excited, and I did a lot of traveling, but I think it was probably a couple weeks in, maybe a month in, the rose-colored glasses started to really fall off, and the reality of how dark and post-Christian Europe is I'm just telling you, but you live there for long enough and it starts to really get to you. It starts to really affect you. And I started getting really depressed. I mean, this should have been like the highlight of my year, the highlight of my college career. I'm getting to go to school in Europe, and it was dark. And I remember walking around like, what is wrong with me? Like, what is this? I feel like there's just this weight in this cloud. And, and uh, it wasn't until, and this is so sweet, it wasn't until I finally found a church that was an international church that spoke English. And I remember the first day I walked through those doors. And I can't tell you what a spiritual reality having community is because I walked in those doors and that burden that I was so, like, un- like what is this, just lifted. And I saw the faces of fellow brothers and, cr- brothers and sisters in Christ And I did life with them on a weekly basis. I started attending a small group with people from all over the world. And it completely changed my experience. I had had a lighter load. I had a a lightness that I didn't have before. And why was that? Because we're not meant to live this life alone. We're not meant to walk through life all by ourselves. We need the support and the community that God has provided us. Because it, it enables us to carry that load together, not just by ourselves. So we see that God provides not only good friends and good community for Paul and his arrival to Corinth, but we see that God comforts Paul through his power and his grace. Did God heal Paul right away? I don't know. I don't think so. But I know that he gave him the power to get through it. It's called enabling grace, right? Paul had learned the secret that it wasn't to preserve and to promote your own strengths that you have, but it's to actually admit weakness and need and dependency on God. And that that is the only way to move forward in the task that lay ahead. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, it says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast," Paul says, and all the more gladly, about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why for Christ's sake, that I delight in weakness, in insults and in hardship and in persecutions and in difficulties, for when I am weak, I am strong. Such a backwards way of thinking in our world today. Grace means, just really, it means help and, and protection from God from outside. It's not dependent on what we do and what we don't do. It's just simply because of God's provision and goodness in our lives. Eight years ago, um, Adam and I actually started a small group in our, in our house. Uh, it was a young adult small group. And we hosted it, and we led it, and we knew it was, it was just a sweet group. We had such a heart for these people. A lot of new Christians. We were pretty young. It was like eight years ago, so I felt young. (laughs) Uh, We realized pretty quickly on that the Lord wanted us to create this space for these people to really grow and to really receive from the Lord. So in order to do that, um, we said, you know what, you guys can just, you know, hang out and stay. We're going to have time of prayer afterwards. But inevitably, maybe because we were so young, no one ever wanted to leave our house. So they would be there. I mean, we literally designated a, a kicker-outer, and around midnight, she would go around knocking on all the doors in our house because people were hiding away with their little prayer groups. She's like, guys, like, sorry, I know you're praying, but, you know, we, Adam and Heather need some sleep, so we got to, like, wind up here. And, and inevitably, every single time we had small group, it was probably, like, one in the morning when Adam and I finally closed our doors and locked our doors and fell into our chairs in our rooms and just looked at each other. And no, I would not recommend that, (laughs) by the way. Um, It's just not realistic for for small groups. But in that season of our life and and with those people, we knew that that's what God was asking us to do. And I can't tell you, as exhausting as it was of all the nights of the week, I felt more alive. It was so rewarding there was so much fruit, and Adam and I actually commented many times how we'd, we'd finally see each other after like six hours of not even really talking to each other. We'd finally see each other at the end of the night. We actually felt closer to one another then than we did even after a date night because we got to, we got to love on people together. We got to do ministry together. We were aquila and priscilla in it (laughs) that's not even a word Um, but you know what i mean doing ministry together is so life-giving but what was so sweet is that we got to see this truth in action we got to see god's grace enabling grace to give us what we needed now it was tiring and it was exhausting but we had so much joy so much fulfillment so that leads us to our second or our third point here that God comforts Paul through he, because he promises his, his actual presence and gives him peace and hope. And we remember seeing this in Acts 8, 9 through 11. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching the word of God. That's the longest he had stayed in any city, if you think about it. What do we need most when we're going through difficult times? Do we, need a, do we need somebody to give us advice on how to fix it? No, right? Do we need someone to tell us maybe why it's happening, why they think it's happening in our lives? Do we need someone to list all the things we should be grateful for? <laughs> Sometimes you want to deck a friend like that. (laughs) Um, No, we need God's presence, right? We need their presence. We don't need their, their many words. We don't need their explanations. We don't need them to try to fix it. We need their presence when we're going through hard times, and that's the same with God. What's interesting here is that God doesn't actually tell Paul any reasons for why he's going through what he's going through. He doesn't explain anything to him. What does he say, though? He says, you will not... Go through this alone. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or abandon you. How cool is that? Because anyone here ever felt abandoned? Anyone here ever felt rejected? That's not God. And God won't do that. I know it's hard when we're going through really hard times. A man, I mean, I've asked this question many times. Like, God, where are you? You know, God, where are you? All I'm feeling is the pain of what I'm going through. Where are you? In Isaiah 49, 16, it says, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So what do, what do people do when they when they want to remember somebody? You know, like someone that's passed. Like some people actually get tattoos, right? They'll get tattoo. Who knows where? But they'll get tattoos to remember that person or remember something that they want to want to like commemorate. And what's so interesting here is that Jesus, Jesus has these has marked us on the palm of his hands. And and where where do you think he got that? He got it at the cross, didn't he? And do you know that even in heaven right now, where Jesus is? He still has those scars. He's not going to forget you. He's not going to forget you. He'll never forget you. No matter what you're going to face today and what you're going to face tomorrow and and next week and next year, you've got to know that God is not going to let you face that alone. He's with you, and he wants to speak to you, and this is cool. I want to look at this real quick. What does he actually say to Paul after he promises his presence? He says, no one's going to harm you. Whew, thank you. <laughs> no one's going to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And what does that mean? I think it means that Paul realizes he doesn't see the whole picture here, that, that God has a plan that's bigger than what he can see. And that is a sweet hope for Paul in this time, because there's always more to the story that we don't see, right? Now I have this really bad tendency, don't judge me, but I research movies before I go to them so I know what happens in the end. I do it. I do it every time. I think especially like suspenseful, suspenseful action movies, I'm always like, I just need to know what's going to happen in the end. Because so I, I actually feel like I enjoy it better, right? I enjoy it better when I kind of know where it's headed and I know, you know kind of what's going to happen in the end. Horrible, I know. But as we know, tension goes down when you know the end of the story, right? Tension goes down when you know the end of the story. What we don't realize here is, you know what? What would have happened if Paul had actually given up at this point in the story? What if he had given up? Let's just say he gave up on Corinth and just said, you know what? I'm just going to move on like I have every single other town I've been in in the last month. I'm just going to move on to the next place because this is way too hard. What if he had given up? I wonder if he would have had the friendship he had with Aquila and Priscilla. I bet he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have gotten to know them to that degree. He wouldn't have done ministry with them. He would have just left. And then the church in Corinth wouldn't have even been planted, right? He would have given up. The church in Corinth wouldn't even be there, and then we wouldn't have gotten First and Second Corinthians, right? Because much later on, he actually writes these letters, these two letters that we have in the Bible, to the church that he plants in Corinth. I mean, think about it, guys, like First Corinthians 13, that's the love chapter. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the love chapter. I mean, every wedding we go to, you know, there's the love chapter. I mean, we wouldn't have that. And I think there's there's, there's other reasons that are paramount for why it's so important that Paul doesn't give up here on the city of Corinth. That's why we've really got to trust that God has a bigger, pan, bigger plan and a bigger purpose at work in our lives. He wants us to have an eternal perspective, right? So that we don't just live for today, but we live in light of eternity. <clears throat> What's interesting is that you and I all have read the end of the story, haven't we? We know what's going to happen in the end. We do. And what's so sweet is you see in Revelations, you see, you see like God saying like, in the end, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cup your, your face in my, in my hands. I'm going to wipe away every tear. That's what's going to happen in the end. Everything is going to be made right. Everything's going to have an account. And I'm finally going to get some explanation for some things. <laughs> I'm finally going to understand why. That's my big question always.
1: Why, God?
0: And for me, that is an incredible, incredible hope. In light of eternity, in light of the fact that God has a bigger plan. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, it says this. And this is a great verse. Um, Therefore, don't, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope, is what it says. Though outwardly we are wasting away, amen, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles, and this is Paul speaking, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. And what is unseen is eternal. So in closing, I want to share a story about <clears throat> a discouraging season, which has kind of been this year for me. And I want to share about a, a, one of the girls in our small group, the small group that I actually shared about earlier. Her name's Caitlin. <clears throat> and she had been sick off and on through the holidays last year. And I remember this because she's my hairstylist. And that's the last time I got my haircut. <laughs> so that was around like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and I remember seeing on Facebook that she had been really sick and she couldn't. She was like not getting better, and and I just thought, you know what, I need a haircut anyways, and I haven't seen her in a while. I would love to catch up with her. So I went and got my haircut, and we chatted and caught up, and she kept coughing, and I'm like, girl, mm-mm, mm-mm, we're gonna pray for you. So we literally like after my haircut, went in my car, and I just prayed for her, and she was really discouraged. Uh, she couldn't get over it. And um, a couple weeks later, she was actually in the hospital trying to get answers. And we were really hopeful that she finally figure out what was wrong, and that she get the medication she would need, and that she'd be on the mend. But weeks later, she was right back in the hospital. And this time, she didn't leave. I think um, she was in the ICU for almost over three months, which is a long time to be in the ICU. it was, it was a really hard, hard season. Uh, talk about discouragement. Our whole small group, and man, talk about the fruit of, of staying up to one in the night, at one in the morning. Um, I saw my whole small group just come out of the woodwork and just rally around her. People I hadn't heard of in, in years come out of the woodwork and pray for her. We even had Penny and if you know Mark Johnson uh, they came they prayed for her we, I even, we even sent out an email um, to the church and had you guys be had you guys praying for her. <clears throat> and what was interesting is we saw some incredible improvement we get this mass text and I mean this happened numerous times we get this mass text that you know everyone should come like we're gonna have to say our goodbyes like she's not doing well and then we'd all pray and then she'd get Better, and I'm talking like they actually moved her out of the ICU for a week because they were she was actually improving so much. So talk about like an up up and down up and down journey, and what was really hard was watching her family ride that wave with her. <clears throat> talk about discouraging. It was gut wrenching because Caitlin's daughter um, is the same age as Eden; they were born in the same month. <clears throat> so it made it just even even harder to watch. And around the end of June, um, Adam and I got a text. We were having dinner with a friend. And, and it said again, like, guys, like, if you want to come, you better come now. Um, you're going to have to say your goodbyes. And, and we were just thrown for a loop because she had been doing so well that week. And I looked at Adam and I said, Hun, like I think, I think you need to go, and, and he's like, yeah. I mean, he was tired. It was Friday night. It was like midnight. He was exhausted. The other friend actually drove him to the hospital, and, and I'm home alone. Um, Eden's upstairs, and I'm home alone, not sure if he's made it to the hospital, not sure what's going on, and I'm sitting there, and I'm praying for Caitlin, and I get this thought, and uh, it was this. She's getting to see Jesus' face, before anybody else in our small group. And I'm like, what? What am, what, am I, what am I thinking that? Only later to find out that she had passed um, in the presence of family and friends. And what's interesting is that Caitlin loved the Lord. I mean, that girl had such faith. She would pray and pray and pray and pray for people. I mean, she was the sweetest, she was the sweetest strongest person. And for me to sit there in a moment Of just tears rolling down my face and going but but of all people she got to hug Jesus first out of all the people in our small group she got to see him face to face before anybody and there was something in my heart that just leaped even though I was in a in a discouraging and and sad place I had hope because I knew that wasn't the end of the story So why don't we go ahead and stand? I know uh, I want to share something I found that I thought was really interesting. Um, Jeremiah, uh, the prophet from the Bible, he wrote a whole book about crying. You know what that book's called? Lamentations. I mean, seriously, it is a whole book of just tears. I mean, this guy is crying nonstop. He's crying over Israel and the fact that he knows they're going to be going in captivity and they won't listen to him. And his heart is breaking. He's actually called the weeping prophet. Not something I necessarily would want to be known for. (laughs) But in Lamentations 3.20, in the midst of crying again, he's saying, my strength and my hope has perished. I've got nothing and I'm flat out discouraged. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I've said that before. But then he turns and he says this. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait in him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the ones who seek his face. It is amazing to me how one word can, can change where we're at, right? And as, as, as God did with Paul in this passage today, it can make such a difference in our life. And as I've been praying over the last week for the service, a um, sense that, that we just, there's some of us that need a word of encouragement today. Amen? We need a word of encouragement today. So I've asked Michael um, to, just to, he had a couple words and then I have, a, I have one as well, and um, let's just go ahead and, and share, and then we'll have a time of prayer.
2: So Heather said just make some stuff up make sure it's good. <laughs> no, uh, <clears throat> uh, just asking the Lord for words of encouragement. So here's, I, I just had a sense that there's people in the room that you've been praying. There's prayers that you've been praying over and over and over, and there's discouragement. And I had this, uh, this vivid picture of God took this person, took you, and opened this door into this room where he had, all these, he had all these prayers on these shelves, and they were your prayers. And every prayer, every container had a, had a sticker on it saying when it would be answered, how it would be answered, like literally mm-hmm. the time that it would be answered. I feel like there's people here today that you need to be encouraged that God is hearing your prayers, and they're not just, you know, they're not fruitless, but they're, that, he, that he's working, and that he has a plan. And then, just uh, <clears throat> there was a sense, and this, this might be like a, well, I'll just say it. But it's a, I just had a picture of all these people standing and there was a line. And, and you're at a season in your life where you had to make a decision and it called for you to, take, to step across this line and it was stepping into faith. And really what it came down to is, like, do I really believe that he is who he says he is? Do I really believe all that, you know, we talk about, all that we read in the word of God? Do I really believe it? And I just felt that there's people here today that he's he's calling you to step across that line. And that's an encouragement because I remember as a kid, this ad we used to have on TV about lotteries, and I'm not not promoting lotteries, but saying you're never going to win, you'll never win unless you buy a ticket. It was something like that. And I just had a sense that there's people here today that you're on this, you need to step across this line into faith, into a situation at work or in a relationship or something, but that you're going to discover that it really is true. And, and, and so, and then the third one was just, uh, there are people here, I had a sense, people that you've been walking with Jesus a long time, and uh, again, I'm, God really speaks to me with pictures. I saw this picture of this huge mansion, and it was God's mansion, and you, when you said yes to Jesus, you stepped into this little, this, this room, sort of the first room in the mansion, and you'd been playing in there, and, and, and you're experiencing something of God, and I just had this sense today that God was saying to people, like, you haven't seen anything yet, He's not talking about heaven. Mm-hmm. He's talking about this side of heaven. You haven't seen anything yet. And they're just I saw him opening all these doors into all these rooms. And so I just think there's people that need to be encouraged that it's, that there's, there's a lot of God and his goodness and his love to be experienced this side of heaven. And, and he's, he's inviting you into that. So, Thank you, Michael.
0: And I had one um, as well. Um, over the last couple of weeks, I've had this phrase in my head, and it has not stopped. And it's this um, from scripture, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I feel like some of us just need to hear that word today. Um, Greater is he that is in me, the spirit of God in me, than the spirit of this world. And and in light of just all that's been going on in our world, I, I, I sense that the Lord really wanted to speak a word of encouragement to those of you that's just been feeling like I, I need to know that God is bigger in this. So as Caitlin is, is uh, leading us in our last song, um, come up for prayer. Um, I really wanna have people pray over you and just invite the Holy Spirit's presence. Uh, my hope is that you wouldn't just take these encouraging words and stick them in your back pocket and leave. Because mere words, you just forget those, right? But not when you experience the Holy Spirit's presence. you hear those words those are lasting words that make impact and change in our life so go ahead and start coming forward we're gonna have people up here that are willing to pray for you and just bless you and invite the Holy Spirit's presence Um, oh yeah one more word Um, I had a picture of um, I've gotten this picture several times
1: through my life but it was just uh, a broken heart and um, with like this rope tied around it and you know like God was just saying that um, I think there's people here that your heart's just been broken through relationships and through people and disappointments. And and I just sensed him binding hearts this morning um, and that he just wants to draw close and minister to you. So if that's you, if you're just dealing with a broken heart in the area of relationships, disappointment, um, people failing you in any way, I just felt like the Lord wanted to draw close and, and bind up broken hearts today as well
0: to come forward and, and receive prayer and then uh, I'll come back and end our service.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Can we have some people come forward and pray? Father, we just thank you for your for your sweet presence here this morning. And we pray, God, that you would just, the words that have spoken to our hearts, God, you would just bring alive, that we wouldn't forget your words of encouragement as we go back into our week this week, God. Just bring your truth to remembrance as we need it in the times we need it the most this week, God. Would you speak your red letters into our lives, God, that we would have hope for our future, Lord. That we would grab a hold of you with faith, knowing how much we need you in our lives, God. Mm. We just uh, pray a blessing over you in Jesus' name. And we just thank you, God, for for your faithfulness in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.